You are listening to the Life Point Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Drew Meyer. For more information about other Life Point Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. We are going to dive into God's Word this morning. Hope you are expectant. Hope you are excited. Matthew chapter 9 is where we will find ourselves this morning as we continue this series called The Kingdom of Heaven. King Jesus representing a kingdom from another world, stepped onto the planet 2,000 years ago and began describing the kingdom of heaven. This was the banner theme of his ministry, and we found this now through the book of Matthew. The banner theme of his ministry is the kingdom of heaven. He came and declared and described and invited us into a kingdom not of this world. So you and I were all born into a natural kingdom, although we don't think in terms of monarchies and in kingdoms as much. We still are all born into a natural kingdom with with rules and priorities and values. Well, Jesus came and introduced an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom with values and principles and priorities that turn everything that we know on its head. And we've been unpacking this through the book of Matthew the last now uh, couple weeks. This is the third week that we've been diving into this. This morning, I want to share a message with you entitled, The Kingdom for the Lost. The kingdom for the lost. The, the, the driving force of the kingdom of heaven is actually not, first and foremost, those that are already found, but actually those that are not yet found, the lost. That's actually the priority of the kingdom of heaven. It's not about, first and foremost, who's in, but it's who's still out of the kingdom of heaven. That's where our focus, our attention needs to be, and it's counter this world, and we'll see that right here on several passages, but right here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. That that describes the banner theme of his ministries, the good news of this kingdom, not of this world. And the Israelites, their ears were expecting that. They were expecting for this Messiah to come and talk about a kingdom. And that's what Jesus did. He fulfilled their expectation, but he turned some of the, the, the nuances and the details of what they were expecting him to proclaim, he turned a lot of that on, on its head. And he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. But was this kingdom just a kingdom of future eternal hope? No. You'll see right here, as I've talked about the last couple of weeks, it says he demonstrated it by healing every disease and every affliction. He says it's not just good news for some future age to come. He says it's good news for here and now, and he set the afflicted free. He set the oppressed free. He, he imparted joy and peace to those who are brokenhearted, to those who are in need. It is, and the last week I did highlight the fact that it is also an eternal hope. It's not just here and now. It's both and. He wants to demonstrate the good news of his kingdom here and now. And then we get to, and that's just like a, a teaser. It's just kind of whets your appetite for what is to come in this future hope. So then in verse 36, and when he saw the crowds, and here it is, this is the the key text of this morning. What did he see? Did he see nameless faces? He said, or he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That is the perspective of the kingdom of heaven. He saw something different than what we see. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask right now that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. 
which is truth, it's sustenance for, for our souls, it's a source of life. It's a living word that pierces our heart, hearts at times. And I just know the way it works, Lord, that there's gonna be moments this morning that, that cut to our heart, and I just pray you give us the humility to receive, give us grace to receive all that you have for us. We wanna live our lives to the fullest. And at times that, that requires us to humbly reflect, possibly even repent, to change our trajectory. And God, I pray that would happen. Speak to every single person here this morning in your name, amen. So you can see the driving force of the kingdom of heaven, the thing that fuels the kingdom of heaven is this compassionate love of Jesus. He looks out and he doesn't see gen generic masses of humans. His heart breaks with this compassion because what does he see? He sees, he sees harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. The very thing that, that moves and compels Jesus, I'm, I'm praying will move and compel us. It's the love of Jesus. So I want to ask a question this morning for every single person here, whether this is your first time, whether you're, you don't even consider yourself a believer, whether you're a devout follower of Jesus, this is the question for every single person. What is it that you are living for? What are you living for? What are you living for? Jesus described the masses of humans lost, harassed, and helpless. They needed a shepherd. They needed guidance. They needed corralling. They were lost. One stereotype of fathers I just want to highlight is fathers' um, inability to ask for directions, right? I mean, we all, we all got it deep in our DNA. It's just imparted throughout the generations, through down through the generations. Maybe your father was that way. Maybe if you're a father, maybe you are that way. I would say I am, I'm bent towards that. There's been moments in our, in our 10 years of married, marriage that my wife has asked me to stop for directions and I just refuse to do it. But I do have to say that stereotype is, is growing like more and more irrelevant with the advent of, of the cellular device and Google and satellites, everything. Everyone's watching us all the time and we can, we can get anywhere we want to go uh, with the, the click of a button. But when, when that fails you, when you go off the grid or your phone dies, I mean, we're, we're like, we are a poor, poor, uh, it's a poor, poor state uh, that we are in. And I remember, I, I had to actually rack my brain for the last time I had been lost because it just doesn't happen very often in, anymore. I had to actually bring myself all the way back to four years ago, our first family vacation. We went to California. A one, three, and a five-year-old. So this is four summers ago, three and a half years ago. And uh, we had traveled all day long to San Francisco, so flights, uh, two flights, and, and we got to the airport in San Francisco at 12.30, so we were with a one-year-old. I mean, it was, it was bad news. Uh, my phone had died. So here, here we are in a, a major city, a major metropolitan area, and I don't have a phone, so we're relying on my wife's phone. But my wife is kind of trying to corral and calm the kids down, and, uh, and, and her phone is the one we were relying on. There she is in the back. We're driving down the interstate, and I realized in San Francisco, like, they don't just have exit, like, we have 113, and then you don't see another exit for, like, six more miles. Well, in San Francisco, they cram, like, six exits into one mile, so it's, it's 116A through G, um, 
And so if you miss your turn, you're, you're, a, you're a lost man. And I quickly realized I am, I'm, I'm in for it. And we wandered and the tensions were rising as, it, as, as the night drew, drew later, later into the evening. I mean, it was 1 a.m. by the time we, 1.30 a.m. by the time we got to our hotel. It was a bad, bad night. I don't know the last time you've been lost. Um, but but that, that, that sense of panic, of zero bearings, I mean, you don't know which way is, is what. You don't even know what you're looking for. That is a sense that Jesus captured as he looked out upon the masses. I guarantee you, as he saw the masses, they had places to go. They had people to see. I'm sure they were mulling about their business. But he saw deeper. He peered deeper into the reality of really what was happening. Kind of peered behind the curtain. And what did he see? He saw harassed and helpless, lost people that were like sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering, meandering. And I want to ask you this morning, are you lost? Are you wandering? Are you meandering? Would you fit into that category that Jesus described 2,000 years ago? Harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. What are you living for this morning? I want us to understand the, this, this, the heart of this king. I think it's hard for us to receive attributes of a king that are so compassionate and loving because we think of kings as mighty and powerful. They have a, a strategic political mind. They think of moving the kingdom forward through brute force and expansion, right? That is the kings that we think of. But Jesus came and he turned all that on his head and he began to rule driven out of a compassionate love and mercy and grace, kindness, benevolence. Those are the attributes of King Jesus. It's not that he doesn't at his disposal have the ability and the power and the authority to do as he wills, but it's also in his character to be so full of kindness and compassion and benevolence. That's our King Jesus. So quickly turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. I just want to keep unpacking this. Because wherever you're at this morning, as you answer that question, what are you living for? I want you to, to catch a fresh glimpse of Jesus. If you are wandering, if you are lost, if you are harassed and helpless, I want you to see Jesus for who he is. And even if you are, if you are here and you say, I am a devout follower of Jesus, I am found in him, I still want you to capture fully this, this, these attributes of who, Jesus, who King Jesus is. Because we see him here as the good shepherd. Here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, it says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is, who is in heaven. And he, Jesus could literally be talking about little ones as in like children. But most probably he's talking about anyone who doesn't yet know him. And, and there's that phrase, that kind of peculiar sentence about the faces of their angels or the, the angel, their angels seeing the face of their Father in heaven. You could maybe take that to mean that we all have guardian angels, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. What Jesus is saying is he's, he's bringing us to the value that these individuals have, that they're angels, that they're angels that do watch over them. I would say it's a whole heavenly host. There's an army of angels that watch over us. Those angels actually sit in the very presence of the Father. They look upon his face, this face that you and I cannot look upon. They, they sit in that throne room. He's talking about their value, the value of these lost ones. 
that hopefully will reorient your priorities. The kingdom of heaven, the priorities of the kingdom of heaven are towards the lost. It's towards those who have not yet discovered the kingdom of heaven. So much so that they have angels that watch over them that sit in the heavenly, heavenly places with the Father. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. This is, these are the priorities of the kingdom of heaven. They'll leave the 99. It's not about who's in. It's about who's not yet in. It's about those who are lost. The shepherd, the good shepherd. So I want to ask you, have you discovered the good shepherd for yourself? Have you, has, has he searched you out? Has he pursued you? Have you res- responded to his pursuit? This is a different type of shepherd. This shepherd, he's not just filling a spot, fill, doing, his, doing his job, doing his role. He wants to care for the, for the flock. He wants to care for his sheep. He doesn't want them to be harmed. He doesn't want them to wander aimlessly. He wants to bring them into the fold and be on a mission. He also is not thinking in terms of profit and loss and cutting his losses at certain moments. Oh, we'll let that one go. We'll cut our losses on that one. No, he has this benevolent, compassionate heart that seeks after the one. I want you to capture that. That passage in uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 that we had first read, when Jesus looked out over the masses, and it says he had compassion. That, that, that Greek word literally means deep empathy. Like he's moved deep in his soul. And it's actually the same word that Jesus later uses in the parable of the prodigal son. When the father sees the son who had rebelled, who had said he wished he was dead, he completely turned his back on the father. When that son comes back to his senses and comes back to the father, The father looks out with compassion. That word that Jesus used to describe the father's love for his son in that moment is the same word Jesus uses in that passage as he looks over the masses. It's that same Greek word. And if I spoke Greek, I would say it to you, but I don't. So I won't say it to you. It's a Greek word, and that's what it means. It's the same word. Jesus looked over the masses, and he was moved with compassion. It's the same love of of the father for his son. So Jesus came and he displayed a perfect love. And he began to describe it to us time and time again in all these different lights and different dimensions of it. He he began to bring it before our eyes. Obviously the grandest fulfillment of it as he laid down his life for all of humanity on the cross and conquered death through the resurrection. But I want you to understand his love because I think sometimes we run from his love because we misunderstand it. His love is not a manipulative love. It's not a coerced love. He's not beating the sheep into submission. This is a free will love, and we cannot have it both ways. I want you to grab a hold of this, because I know, even as I worked on the campus for seven years, I know one of the biggest stumbling blocks that people have with the idea of a loving God is the fact that bad things happen in this life. We experience pain. We experience tragedy. We explain, we, uh, we, um, experience betrayal, disease, sickness. And all of these things can be a stumbling block that keep us from God, but we cannot have it both ways. Just the fact that we can ask the question of why is a reflection of our humanity and our free will. That we are able to think on that level and say, God, why? 
We cannot have true love without free will. There has to be this volition, this willingness in our hearts to come to our senses and turn towards God. So Jesus, he came and began to display this non-manipulative, non-coerced, he's not twisting any arms. That's the kind of love that we are created for. Look at Acts chapter 17, because I think this is a great picture of the harmony of God's sovereignty, that he, he knows all, he can do all, he has all power, but, but yet his, his willingness to allow us to have free will and free choice. Acts chapter 17, this is how Paul says it to the Athenians. So they didn't come from this Hebrew mindset, Hebrew worldview. So he came at it from a philosophical perspective, and he said, from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. And he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. That is the sovereignty of God. His purpose was this. His purpose was love. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we exist. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That is the beautiful harmony of both God's sovereignty and our free will. He allotted the, the boundaries and the periods with which we will live. And his intention was that we would seek after him and find him. He's not far from any one of us. The love of God being revealed to humanity. That's what sets us apart from the rest of creation. Is our free will ability to love. We are created for love. So I don't know why you have continued to wander. I don't know where you're at this morning. I myself, I come from a broken home. I've had many opportunities, and there have been moments where I have wandered. But there's also been this firm revelation, this clear understanding of who God is in my life that I cannot deny, that I cannot deny deep in my soul. And it draws me to himself. It draws me to my Father. So I want to ask you, what are you living for? Have you found him? My prayer this week for, for you has been John chapter 17, verse 3. It's the prayer of Jesus. He's praying to his father, and he says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's how Jesus described eternal life, is that they would know your heavenly father. That's my prayer for you this week. All week long, I've been praying that every single person that comes here, they would just consider it. If you're wandering, if you're lost, uh, and, and you're still seeking it out. You're obviously, that's uh, th something that keeps us going day after day as we, as we wake up. We pursue career, we pursue family, we pursue money, we pursue hobbies. They're all trying to fill some sort of chasm in our hole, some sort of hole deep in our soul. I would just propose you consider the person of Jesus. Consider King Jesus, this good shepherd, he said, this is fulfillment of eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. So that's the, the first side of this question. What are you, what are you living for? I want to now shift gears to those who would say they are followers of Jesus. They have found their life and their purpose, their fulfillment in the person of Jesus, the, the good shepherd. I want to speak to you next. Turn to Matthew, back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. 
this tremendous story that should be a convicting picture of how we are to live as followers of Jesus. Because there's an interesting dynamic that begins to um, be at work in our hearts if we are not careful. I'll bring you back to probably a period of your life that you've been trying to avoid going back to, which is middle school, high school, right? Probably middle school. I remember the difficult leap from elementary school to middle school, full of awkwardnesses, but I just remember the rejection. So this is what happened for me. I went to a small elementary school, and I had a group of friends, and they were cool. We all got along great. We all had common interests. And then we go to the big middle school where all the elementary schools come together, right? And all of a sudden, I found that these friends, now they're in a bigger pool, they just like completely rejected me. All of a sudden, I'm still dealing with the scars, you can, you can tell. But all of a sudden, they, they didn't want anything to do with me. I remember one specific, one specific friend, it was like he passed me in the hallway as though he didn't know me. And so there I was, to fend for myself, to try to find a new group of friends. We all remember the weird dynamics of being in the in group, right? When you're in the in group, you're not thinking about who's not out. You're just glad you're in. The kingdom of heaven is not just about being in, it's about who's not yet in. And that has to be the way our minds continually think. And the church throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, have tended towards being a club about who's in. And we kind of pat ourselves on the back and we think we're something great. But we cannot sleep well at night when 50% of Story County considers themselves non-religious. That's according to the U.S. Census Bureau. 50% of our county considers themselves unreligious, non-religious. That doesn't even mean the other 50% have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That should keep us up at night. We should be moved with the loving compassion of Jesus to actually live the message of Jesus in our city, to do something about it. We always have to be brought to our knees with the reality that we are in because of him. It is the radical grace of God That is the reason we are in. We are in the kingdom of God because of his radical love for us, his radical grace. And if we are not careful, we can allow our contentment with being in, we can allow that to outweigh our love for those that aren't. So let's just look at Matthew chapter 9. This should cut to our hearts. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. So Matthew, who wrote this book, recounts his own testimony. Matthew knows about what it means to be an outsider, to be an outcast from society. There he was in his tax booth. Like, it was an indictment upon him to have no friends. Like, he he made his pursuit very clear. Like, he has no problems, having no values. I'm going to trade, betray all my friends. I'm going to go after money. I'm going to cheat at that. But Jesus turned all that on his head, and he pursued Matthew. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. For those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for sinners, not for the righteous. Was he saying the Pharisees literally had no need of a Savior? No, absolutely not. He was saying they, in their own minds, and their own hearts, they had no need for a Savior. 
Jesus came for those who actually knew of their need. He came for sinners. He came for the lost. And we always need to be compelled by that radical grace, that grace that pursued us. Jesus, this is the mission statement of the kingdom of heaven. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. And so so something happens for some reason when we commit our lives to Christ, like wrecked in our own hearts because of the grace of God. A a switch flips, and all of a sudden, we begin to think that we, we arrived here out of our own great decisions and our own upbringing. We begin to pat ourselves on the back, and we forget, we, we soon forget where we came from. We are in because of him. That's why we are here. Thank God for the grace of God. We are in because of him. So here is the litmus, the litmus test for how, how much this is actually affecting our heart. When you look at a person, do you see their sin, their detestable sin, and that's what we see? Are you distracted by their sin, or do you see their lostness? Does your heart break with the love of God for their wandering? That's the real test. For some reason, and I would have loved to see Jesus actually in those those, uh, moments with the sinners, with the hypocrites, with the um, with the tax collectors, with the prostitutes. I would have loved to see how he interacted because he didn't affirm their sin, but yet he was able to be with them. And then he say, go and sin no more. He's calling them to a whole different way of life. He wasn't patting, on, patting them on their backs and teaching them how to be better sinners, but he had no problem inserting himself into the muck and the mire and calling them to a whole different way of life. How do you see people? Do you see their sin or do you see their lostness? Does it, does it break your heart? How would you see Matthew? Put yourself in the, in the sandals of the Hebrews, the, the Jewish people who, tax, I mean, tax collectors were traitors. Would you see Matthew as that? Or would you be able to see him like Jesus saw him and see his destiny in the kingdom of heaven? This guy is gonna be an evangelist to the Jews. He's gonna write, one of the Gospels that will, that will guide my church for centuries to come. Jesus was able to see with the, the eyes of the kingdom of heaven all oh, that our hearts would be gripped with the love of God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus tells us that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added unto you. And in the context of that passage in Matthew chapter 6, Verse 33 is Jesus talking about how we don't need to worry about the food that we're going to eat, the clothes that we're going to wear, the places we're going to live. Our Heavenly Father is going to take care of us. But if we seek first His kingdom, what happens? When His priorities become our priorities, He takes care of all the rest. And I pray that as Christ's followers, that we would be firmly, um, we would firmly just embrace where we've been where Christ took us from, and we would take on his priorities. And this is, I'm speaking from where the Lord has us currently as a church. I've been doing some soul searching. The mantra of our church is live the message. I would, as your pastor, I would say we are not currently living the message of Jesus. I see it in pockets. I see it in moments. I I celebrate individual lives. 
how, how people are living out the message of Jesus, how they're experiencing actual gospel transformation and intimacy with God in their daily lives. But we're not there yet as a movement, as a church, as a, as a church community. But we're going there. And one, one thing strategically that, that we're beginning to put in motion is we've just formed a missions team. And J.F. Krause, would you stand for a moment? J.F. and Kathy Krause, they have agreed to lead a missions team that is, begin, that is going to begin getting on their knees and praying, seeking God, dreaming with God about what is possible through our church. Local missions in our, in our city, in our state, in, in our, our across the globe, about what is possible if we really get the heart of God. If the priorities of the kingdom of heaven become the priorities of our church, what is possible? That's what they're, they're going to do, and they're going to um, lead an amazing team. And it's, it's not a small task. This church has an amazing legacy of giving to missions. Hundreds of thousands, if I were to do the math, I'm sure it's over, over millions of dollars that this church has given to missions across the globe. We could just keep putting money into things that maybe we have no connection with, or we could get on our knees, get the heartbeat of heaven, understand in this hour, in this day, in our generation, what God wants to do, and partner with that. And that's what we're going to do. And JF and Kathy, I'm excited for their leadership. Thank you, JF. If you're interested in being part of that team, you should come talk to me. We just need people that are, that are humble and willing to pray and seek the heart of God. So I want to end with this. And I'm going to call us all to the altar. Because, because I said this question is for everybody. This is going to be a response for everybody as well. What are you living for? What is it that you're living for? If you're lost and you're wandering, I pray that you consider the good shepherd, the father, as the answer to your searching, to your seeking. If you have found Jesus as your good shepherd, I'm praying that you would take on his priorities. And an an image that I just have not been able to get out of my mind lately has been Matthew 22, which is the parable of the wedding feast. The parable goes like this. A king wants to throw a wedding feast for his son, and he wants it to be the biggest wedding party of the decade. This is like a royal wedding, so it's gonna be amazing. So he wants the wedding hall and the wedding party to be filled. So they go to their family and their friends. The servants go out. They make all the invitations. And pretty much everyone turns them down. They're like, we're too busy. We're too cool. We got other plans. Maybe next time, invite us next time around. If the marriage doesn't work out and you throw another party, invite us then. Maybe we'll come. What does the king do? He's relentless. The wedding hall will be full. The banquet hall will be chock full. I just can't get this this image out of my mind. He says, go out into all the side streets, call in both the good and the bad. That's verbatim. Jesus said, call in the good and the bad. Call the rich and the poor, call them all. The wedding hall will be full. That is the heartbeat of the kingdom of heaven. And in that passage, Matthew 22, Jesus actually starts out and he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to this. That's what the kingdom of heaven, that's what the the heartbeat, the rhythm of heaven now throughout the ages has been for this type of experience, for the lost to be found. And that's my prayer for, for every single person here this morning. If you are wandering, if you are lost, and if you are found in Jesus, that you would capture that heartbeat, the heartbeat of heaven. If you just bow your heads and close your eyes. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about LifePoint Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.